Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Say Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. In his eternal design for his son to become man, God the Father also chose Mary as the mother of the Word incarnate. This plan, this great plan, this great vision, eternal vision, had an essential effect both in the manner in which the Word would become flesh, because the Word not only became man, but he also became the descendant of Adam, but also in the form of Mary's motherhood, what form that would take. It was all part of an an eternal plan. That's why we say that hers is a perfect and complete motherhood in all its aspects. In that motherhood of Mary, in the very person of the Virgin Mary, we find a total, absolute reference to the person of the Redeemer and to the salvation of the world. Like her, her motherhood is connected to the salvation of the world. That's why she was mother. She's not only the mother of the Redeemer, but she is also his companion, Socia, as we say in, in Latin. And she's a cooperator in the work of redemption. Co-redemptrix, we say. Now, from the earliest days, Christian piety has recognized Mary's maternal mission, has recognized that she is the mother of the Word, but also that she is the mother of all human beings, our mother our Immaculate Mother. That's what we, we began with when we started our prayer this morning. Happy to be here on this great solemnity. We said, My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father. My Immaculate Mother. And that the deepest... the reason for our holiness, Christian piety has recognized this, that the deepest reason for our holiness and the fullness of grace that she enjoys, well, that, that, that has been recognized right from the earliest uh, years. And that she enjoyed that right from the very moment of her conception. It was not something that she acquired kind of through time as she realized what was going on, but rather, bang, from the moment of her conception. 
She was holy. She was immaculate. That means that there is a very, very close to connection between her divine motherhood and her immaculate conception. Her immaculate conception is in function of her divine motherhood, or vice versa. I don't honestly... Yeah. So that's why we say that by divine decree, she is his physical mother. She's the physical mother of the Redeemer. And this brings a decree of graced redemption par excellence. She was full of grace and she herself had to be redeemed as well. But she was redeemed in a more perfect way. She, she was a creature and in some way original sin could have affected her, should have affected her, insofar as she was part of the human race. She was a descendant of Adam. But God protected her from, from that, that lineage so that she could be the mother of the Redeemer. And uh, that's why we say that she is the dawn of salvation. In her, salvation shines more perfectly. She's the dawn of salvation because with her, well, comes our salvation, our redemption. But she's the dawn. She's like right the first very moment when light comes into the world. That's dawn. That's the very first sign of light. So that means that her holiness that she had by divine decree and by divine work led to her being saved or her redemption uh, in a more perfect way. And that means that she participated in the redemption mission, redemptive mission of her son in a more perfect way. She is Mater Redemptoris, Mater Redemptoris, Mother of the Redeemer. And you can't, you can't get closer to participating in the redemptive mission than that. Everybody, in some way, participates in the redemptive mission. Why are you here? Well, either some friend or somebody brought you to be baptized or normally your parents had you baptized they were participating in the redemptive mission by doing that as parents it was their responsibility to have their child baptized some people for whatever reason didn't do it or couldn't do it or but then somebody else was an instrument sometimes it could be even people imagine somebody who is who has no friends, let's say, okay, imagine somebody has no friends, doesn't talk to anybody, is all alone, lives in the jungle, but finds books and converts. Well, who collaborated? Well, the person who wrote the book. The person who wrote the book. There's a story of a, of a priest. Well, no, was he a priest? I'm not sure now if he was a priest or not, but uh, he was on his deathbed and he had written in the past, 
he had written really a lot of bad heretical books, really bad, like way bad, all condemned by the church, false ideas. But then he converted and he changed and he came back to the faith. And he's there on his deathbed and the priest is there accompanying him and uh, he's doing last rites and he's hearing his confession. But this priest is completely, he's kind of like panicking. He's saying, okay, fine, God is going to have mercy on me, maybe, maybe, but I'm not sure because my books still survive. They're still there and they're still being read, the bad books, that is. Uh, and they're still going to do harm. How can I avoid that? People are still going to read those books. And he could not find a way to resolve that dilemma. That though, though he himself now had turned to God and had asked for forgiveness and God had forgiven him, it's as though the evil that he had done or that he had participated in by leading people into error was still continuing even now. And... Uh, and the priest said, well, maybe nobody will read them. Maybe nobody will read them. But he had no assurance of that. I mean, well, with our Blessed Mother, nobody ever read anything that she did, or obviously, or that she wrote. But on the, on the complete contrary, she continues, because of her divine motherhood, to co-redeem. And that means that Her Holiness, because she is the mother of the Redeemer, continues to act in some way in us. You know that the, the early icons of Jesus show him being held by his mother in her lap. There were some of these icons that were brought back from the Holy Land by, I believe it was Edoxia, the mother of Constantine, and she brought back at least one of these famous icons that had been attributed to, to uh, St. Luke, apparently painted by St. Luke. And there she is, sitting upright, and she holds Jesus. He looks, well, he's a tiny baby, but he kind of looks like a little miniature man. And uh, like to underline the fact that he is a savior, she holds him in her lap and she, she seems to point at him. She goes like this, points at him, and he raises his hand and he goes like this. And he has his thumb like that and he's blessing. He's going like that, it's like blessing. And she's going. So that icon, I'm sure you've seen these before, she looks kind of severe and he looks even more severe. That icon is called the Hodogateria in Greek, which means the way shower, the way shower, or the one who shows the way, because she is pointing, she's showing the way to salvation. And he is the Redeemer, he is salvation. The origin of these monasteries probably came from Constantinople, a monastery there called Hodegon. That's how they got Hodegateria. And they became very popular, these icons. 
She is pointing to the source of the salvation of humankind. And sometimes in these icons, the Blessed Virgin is kind of pointing her head towards her, her child. And it's beautiful to see. He's got his hand up in blessing. And some of these became very popular between the 12th and the 15th century. I mean, they go back probably much earlier to, the, I would say, probably to the 5th probably fifth or 6th century, but some of them were reproduced and, and became popular in the 12th and 15th century. And pilgrims that came to Constantinople and travelers that came from other countries would convene every Tuesday when the icon was paraded through the city to perform miracles. And there were miraculous healings regularly that took place regularly during this rite when the participants in these processions would receive the blessing with this marvelous icon. And sometimes the clergy would take little pieces of cotton, wool, and touch the icon, probably to obtain or gather some of the holy oil that was sometimes exuding from these icons. Mary was showing the way to salvation. She shows us the way to salvation. She shows us the Redeemer, and she participates in such a perfect way in the work of redemption. And for her to do that, she was not just the mother of Jesus, the man. She had to be the Immaculate Mother and Virgin. That means, Mary, that you are uniquely associated with your son. Imagine if you had not been prepared like that, your son would not have found a dwelling place. He would not have found a lap to sit on. He would not have been able to have a real tabernacle to be amongst us. Because he needed a pure tabernacle, a place that was untouched by sin. How could he be come into this world and himself be a descendant of Adam in the sense that he too would have had sin? He would not have been able to be our redeemer. He needed, he needed like a special home to come into this world. And of course, if holiness is nothing other than our union with Christ, a relationship of filiation with Christ in the Spirit, if that's what holiness is, well then the unique and unrepeatable relationship with the Word that Mary's motherhood establishes makes her a completely unique creature. That's for sure. She's completely unique. There was one word that was bandied about in the early church and still is used sometimes. She was called the all-holy, the panagia, meaning right from the first conception. When we, when we say all-holy, means that she, was, she wasn't just a person who became holy after she was born because she did good things and she was holy, you know, like the saints are. She was 
all holy. Panagia meaning going right back to something that she had no say in, like how, how she was conceived, like she was just conceived, here I am, in, in the womb of her mother, St. Anne. That reference to Panagia is used also in the, in the Catechism today. Now this whole doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, which we are celebrating today, took a while to develop. First Christians understood it pretty much, or at least intuited it. And um, then theologians kind of thought about it, they wrote about it. Though it took a little while. I mean, as the centuries wore on, the Church became more and more aware of her being full of grace, that she was redeemed right from the moment of her conception. It took a while. but And, uh, and then the idea kind of was moved into the liturgy. There were prayers in the liturgy referring to the Immaculate Conception. There was tons of popular devotion. There was already devotion to our Blessed Mother, but the idea of the Immaculate Conception, like that, that idea, like it took a while. Until finally... It was like completely defined, or like as a dogma, in Pius the Pius the Ninth, eighteen fifty four, in Deus, in his like whatever decree. That's why we, I, I think that's why we celebrated on the December eighth because it was on December eighth, eighteen fifty four, that he made his decree. So, I may be wrong here, but uh, the December eighth, as such, is only important insofar as as it refers to the date of this decree. But I'm, I read that the early Christian fathers don't actually use the expression Immaculate Conception, but the best way to understand how they see it is through the parallel that they made constantly with, the, with Eve. They call Mary the new Eve. Mary's obedience to the angel was seen in contrast to Eve's battle with the devil in the garden. Just as Eve lost the battle, well, Mary won the battle. It is Eve's disobedience is, is a sin and brought about original sin. Mary's obedience is holiness. So Eve's disobedience sin, Mary's obedience is holiness. In fact, Eve's disobedience was forgiven, but thanks to Mary's obedience. And if Eve is depicted as a sinful woman, the origin of sin itself, she's the one who led her husband to sin and brought about the fall. Mary is the opposite. She is the one who is all pure, the origin of salvation, insofar as the Redeemer was born of her and she cooperated in her son's redemptive work. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing parallel. Right? Eve, Mary, Eve, Mary. Like, Eve, bad, 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 bad. Mary, good, 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 good. Again, on, on every level it works like that. But, okay, so the early church understood this, this parallel, but the debates continued for a while. 
But they thought, I mean, one of the big problems they had was, of course, if Christ was the universal Savior and saved everyone, and she was supposedly without sin, how can she call him her Savior? Like, if she had no sin, she wouldn't need a Savior. And it's funny how the, the Church for a long time, like, agonized over this, and, um, and it, finally it came... The, like an understanding of this came to suggest that, well, yeah, she needed a savior too. She says, you know, I, I rejoice in God, my savior. Uh, but the way she was saved was different. It was unique. She was saved in provision of her son's merits rather than after. In other words, before she fell into sin, she was saved. Like she should have been, she should, she too should have been, um, you know, have original sin. But she was preserved from that as a special, unique privilege. She was preserved. Thanks to the merits of her son. So she was saved, but just in another way, a better way. She had class A, we have class B. Well, I don't know if that's correct, but uh, she was in first class, we are in second class. But, uh, I mean, we're pretty, still a pretty good uh, class. Because you know? we were, after all, redeemed by her son. Cardinal Lanziger, he says, the background of this is the teaching of, on original sin. This says that every man comes forth from the background, from a background of sin. A damaged relationship, we called it. And this way is burdened with the disorder in his relation to God. In the course of time, the idea developed within Christendom that the one who from the beginning is there to serve as a gate for God, who was especially intended for him, could not be affected in this way. She's a gate. She's a gate to let God in. And that idea came that the one who is going to be the gate well, could not be affected in that way. And as the fathers continued to reflect on this, they, they, saw, they saw how Mary, more and more as they read the Old Testament, how she was foreshadowed. Of course, the most famous passage is the Proto-Gospel, what was called the Proto-Gospel, Genesis 3, 3.15. I will put enmity between her seed and him. Right? The, this is what um, was promised to the serpent. So she, she will, she will crush your head. God said to the serpent, to the devil. She, ipsa, conterit caputu, ipsa. That's how, how Saint Jerome translated. He translated in the feminine. She will crush your head. Like, get ready. You're going to die, devil, when Mary is going to come. And then there are other passages, like Isaiah, the virgin mother of Emmanuel, a future sign, Micah, you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, shall bring forth a ruler of Israel, 
or the Ark of Noah, built by a divine command to escape the effects of sin. So Noah builds this ark in which all the animals go in and, you know, the tigers and the elephants and the giraffes and they all go in and they're saved. They're all saved. And uh, the ark of Noah, there must have been an ungodly smell in there and all those animals. But it was thanks to the ark. So she was seen as the ark. In the story of Jacob's ladder, that famous dream that uh, Jacob has where the angels are going up and down it's, it's, a, it's meant to be an image of the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the future the burning bush the burning bush where uh, Moses sees, sees the, the, the burning bush and it is held to, it held the presence of God but it did not experience material corruption, that, that bush, whatever it was, that it didn't burn up. In the same way Our Lady didn't burn up, she didn't know corruption. We say, the, the Tower of David, David built a tower, Tudus Davidica, we say, it means it was a tower, like a building, that was impenetrable, you could not, people could not attack it, just not, that's why we say, Tudus Davidica, the Tower of David. She's an inviolable garden, a garden enclosed, Ark of the Covenant, this Ark that people were carrying that had the Holy of Holies. All these images. She was called the Mother of the Church, Mater Ecclesia. And of course the church that we are in is a big church and there's lots of people of all kinds. And this beautiful title Mother, Mother Ecclesia was solemnly declared in 1965 at the um, end of the Second Vatican Council. It's one of those moments that uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, when he was Pope Benedict, recalled, and as he at that time was a young theologian, and it, it was a moment of great excitement for him that Mary was declared Mater Ecclesia. She's not just the mother of Jesus, she's our mother. And so let us uh, let's go to her today. She's pointing the way to salvation. And I know that, well, since it's a big feast, probably today you'll have extra work. And you're going to probably prepare an extra meal. Or not an extra meal, but... Uh, I'm not going to have an extra meal, but uh, I don't know. You know, it'll be special to underline the value you, we give to this great solemnity. Let us ask uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary to really intercede for us. She is our mother. She's the mother of the church. She's the mother of Lincroft. She's the mother of Ernstcliffe. She's the mother of Toronto. She's our mother. She's going to always point us to the way of salvation. So lest, lest we do anything today that does not point us to Jesus, she's going to go, uh, you're supposed to no, look at Jesus. She's pointing us the right way. Our Blessed Mother will definitely today, in a unique way, send us graces, intercede for us, and help us to bring, she'll bring us to her Son.
I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.